Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1st John, 1st John chapter 3, I'll be reading 1st John chapter 3 verse 24 through chapter 4 verse 6. John continues, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because or for Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and powerful word to our hearts. Father, help me as a desperate child Be honest with the text to unfold and say what your apostle John wrote here. Help me say it in ways that help all of us see the clarity that's here in this scripture. Help us be affected by it in our hearts. Do this for our salvation, for our sanctification, for the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you've been on this journey through the epistle of 1 John, I I didn't want to totally leave verse 24 even though we got to it last week because it is directly connected to what is coming after. So I want you to notice there at the end of chapter 3 that verse 24 says there's a strong, powerful witness deep within a believer's soul that's testifying to each believer. You are of God. You're of Christ. You are saved. Look at the second half of verse 24. And by this we know that He abides in us. Okay, now here it is. This is what He means by the this. By the Spirit 
whom he has given us. There you go. Much of your assurance of salvation rests there. And this is not some religious function or an organizational structure that one plugs into here. This is organic spirit life. According to this verse, John is saying, one of the ways we gain assurance that I'm true, my faith is real, I am in Christ, I'm being saved by Him, is by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It's essentially the same thing Paul will write in Romans 8.16 when he said, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, remember the larger flow of John's thought. He has been saying that the first evidence of a true Christian, of a true believer, is the love they have for other believers that is created in them by the Holy Spirit. And now, John adds a second evidence. We can call it the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. So, I'm going to pick up at verse 24. I'm going to read again. I want you to feel the flow of what John is doing. And by this, we know that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, meaning that He is the one who has come from God and is truly human, that person is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, so get the logic of John here. Remember, he didn't write chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, or verses, okay? That's just added later just so I can point you to where to go. So you must ignore those. The logic flowing out of verse 24 into verse 1 of chapter 4 is essentially like this. Look, a true believer has God Himself, God the Holy Spirit, dwelling in them in a way that He did not before through new birth. That God's Spirit dwells in you, believer. And here's the logic. Therefore, a true believer is not to go ahead and just believe every teaching or every spirit, but you're to test the teachings because the Spirit dwells in you. That's what John is saying. See, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, then, John gives a specific test. You see that phrase? Verse 2, by this you know. In other words, he's saying, 
Here's the test by which you can know if someone is being led by the Holy Spirit in their teaching or by some other spirit than the Holy Spirit. Here's the test. Is this Bible study leader on a Tuesday night of God? Is that professional theologian with a PhD, professor of New Testament or systematic theology of God? Is that small church teaching pastor or is that mega church leader or is that TV preacher of God? Really? Indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Is he or is she a representative of the Holy Spirit? Or a representative of the Spirit of this world, of this culture? How can you tell? That's the question. What is the test. It's right there in verse 2. It's clear. Let's read it. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John's logic, his flow in this paragraph is that the indwelling Holy Spirit leads you, believer, to discern false doctrine from true doctrine. Particularly meaning on these core, vital issues of the faith. Like the incarnation of Christ. Which is at issue here. That's why that's the one that is listed because that is the doctrinal issue of this whole letter. But if it were on the issue of the Trinity or if it were on the issue of what the Apostle Paul deals with, with the Galatian churches about, okay, we believe in Jesus, we believe He's truly man, and then they get the doctrine of how you're saved by Him, that you can add works to your faith wrong. That's a core issue. John is saying, believer, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are to discern false doctrine from true doctrine. See, here, here's the deal. In the world, during this age, until Jesus comes back, this is the way that it is. The Holy Spirit is causing persons to be born again through the truth of the Gospel coming at people. Into their ears, into their eyes. That's not all that's happening though. Holy Spirit's been doing it for 2,000 years and He's doing it today. But what else has happened is this. There are other spirits that influence people to become religious. 
And the fruit ultimately is in core doctrines of Christ being denied by those persons. But notice what John says here. When you, if you're a believer, if you come to faith in Christ truly, when you give that genuine confession of the truth of God, who was always with the Father, as John puts it, became flesh. By that he means became truly human. When you make that genuine confession of Jesus Christ, you can know that you are of God. That you have been born again. That you are indwelt by the Spirit. Now, I hope you see that. Because now I want to say, wait a minute. (laughs) I confessed the truth that God became a human being in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was the person of the Godhead who became truly human. And that He died for sins. And that He was bodily resurrected. I confessed that at age 10. And 13, and 16, and 17. But I was not a Christian. I was not of God. Yet. I was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We all know that there are people who can say true things about Jesus. And affirm, I I accept that, who are not born again. Who are not indwelt by the Spirit. You can say all kinds of stuff. Just think about the, you know, a street witness or badgering some poor fellow. And he's just thinking, what can I do to get rid of this person? I'll say your prayer. I'll accept Jesus into my heart. I'll confess whatever you want. He won't say it out loud to the person, but he's thinking, then just leave me alone. Did that confession, is it really proof that the Spirit indwells that person? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, not everyone who says to me on that day of His second coming, who confesses, in other words, to me, Jesus, you are Lord, Lord. Not everyone who does that will enter the kingdom of God. So the question is, when John makes this statement about confession, what does he mean by the word confess here? I mean, does he mean merely if you say in English or any other language that you know those appropriate words, you know, abracadabra, it's true of you, you're born again. I don't think it means that at all. I want you to just flip back to where he used the word confess already in chapter 1, verse 9. It's a very familiar verse. John writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 
Clearly there, John doesn't merely mean mouthing words. I confess my sin of this and that. As if that confession were some type of magical incantation where God's hands are tied and now He's got to forgive you. Clearly that's not what He means. Clearly... Forgiveness here and reconciliation don't happen with an insincere confession or mouthing of words. I'm just, I'm just arguing John clearly, doesn't he, expect us as we read him to understand that he means a confession that springs from deep within the heart. A confession that, that, that feels its sin and its regret and has true repentance and trust in the gospel of Jesus who died for my sins. The, the confession is flown from there. Isn't that what he means by confess in the context? Yes. And so when you come to chapter 4, verse 2, he uses the word confess again here about doctrine, about truth, about Jesus Christ. He doesn't mean mere words are a sign that a person's born again or indwelt by the Spirit. He means that, that deep down, eye-opening conviction that Jesus, the Creator, really through Mary became human being and died for me. It's, it's what you say, it's already there. Wow! And, and of course you can you confess it. If you teach, you teach it. If, if you teach it to just your children, you teach it. That's your conf is confession. That's what he means by those are the persons who are born of God. It is in that way that a sincere Genuine confession is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit saving that person. So in other words, mere truth words or doctrinal words, no matter how true they are, just by themselves, the person says them, doesn't prove that the Spirit indwells that person. Unless those words are coming from a heartfelt conviction in submission to the truth of those words. See, this is, this is why it is vain, it's empty, and it's ultimately deceptive to try to pressure persons to make a confession. To try to pressure them into say this prayer and you put some theological content I believe this I believe that and Jesus come into my heart as if something magical will happen so just feel John's flow of thought now up to up to this point he has said because the Holy Spirit makes the truth of the gospel known and embraced in the depths of our being. That's where that confession's coming from. Because that's true, that's why John goes on to write verse 3. In other words, so if you hear a preacher teach something at the core of who Jesus is and salvation, what salvation is, if you hear them teach something, therefore, that 
is contrary to the truth, then clearly that teaching is not from the Holy Spirit, no matter how much the person claims it is. John is saying, you can make this spiritual discernment Who's of the Spirit? What teachings of the Spirit or not? You can make that spiritual discernment based on content. Based on what is said and proclaimed. You see, he calls them false prophets and spirits. Don't get confused. When he's talking about Judging spirits, he doesn't mean demon spirits floating around. He means when human beings, professing Christians, come and teach, this is the test of judging the spirit that is behind them. So look at verse 3 and listen to how he says it. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus... In the context, it clearly means does not confess that Jesus truly became a human being because this was the issue going on within the church. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Instead, this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. So he says these teachers, these false teachers, these false prophets do not represent the Holy Spirit, but they represent the Spirit that is against Christ, against the truth of Christ, against the Gospel that can save people. That's where their teaching is going. And the influence behind them is called, according to John, the against Christ Spirit, the anti-Christ Spirit. They are enemies, ultimately. Even though they say, I love Jesus. Even though they use that name. They are enemies of the Gospel of Christ. And John's point to genuine believers is this. The way that you are to be protected from that is by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who calls us in our lives constantly. He's calling us to test the Spirit behind teachings. In our day and age of the internet, television, social media, self-promotion, What is a preacher's anointing based upon? You know, a lot of you younger have no idea. Once in a while, some of us older people tell stories of our church backgrounds. And I've been in backgrounds where anointing was based upon the audacity and the confidence of a man. No matter what he said. No matter the content. He was to be believed because he said he heard from the Spirit of God. And there's a, almost a hypnotic persuasion in groups like that where you feel, I don't want to be against 
God? What, what is the anointing? What is it based upon? How do you know? I mean, we live in, in a day and in an age where people tend to confuse personality with Holy Spirit anointing. Some have emphasized rhetorical abilities and skills and charisma over doctrine, the truth, the text of Scripture. In other circles, some have emphasized visions and dreams. And thus saith the Holy Spirit. You've got to hear me clearly here. Thus saith the Holy Spirit at the expense of the clear words of the Holy Spirit delivered through the apostles in this book. See, there's nothing new under the sun. Those kinds of things were happening in the first century. If you don't know your New Testament well, go pick it up and read 2 Corinthians. It's all over it. It's happening in the situation that the Apostle John is dealing with. In the first century, people are claiming unusual authority from God's Spirit. It's most likely why John is wording things about the Spirit and His indwelling and how you test the spirits. That's why he is wording it this way. There are many professing Christians that he's dealing with that were using the excuse, we have the Spirit. And that's where our teaching comes from. And that was their excuse. To not be tied down to the tradition of the apostles' teaching. That's the issue. That is what the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, at the late first century, that's what he's battling against. He's battling for the Holy Spirit. He's battling for true Holy Spirit teaching through the apostles. And he's battling against those who held to their own self-proclaimed spirit authority. That's why you should believe what I believe, even if it doesn't line up with Paul. Peter, or John, and the eyewitnesses. See, John is saying that the Holy Spirit's indwelling is life-changing. What he is doing is he is witnessing to our hearts the truth. That's what he's doing. He's bearing witness to the truth. What truth? To the same truth that he inspired the original eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and who were personally commissioned by Jesus as his personal sent ones, the apostles. He is witnessing to that truth 2,000 years later. 
what they proclaimed, and then inevitably wrote, and we have, in the New Testament. And so the way that we test the spirits of preachers and teachers and pastors and conference speakers is not by how many books they sell or how many followers they have on Twitter or by their performances of healings in their so-called healing ministry or by their persuasive, attractive charisma. The test is simply this. Do they hold to? Do they teach? Do they unfold the apostles' doctrine? That's it. Now, if you look at your text, John then turns in verses 4 to 6 to unfold even more specifically the dynamics of what he just said in verses 2 and 3. But to feel the flow, what I want to first do, I want to go back to 2 and 3, spend about 18 seconds, and and give you my my paraphrase, interpretation of, of the flow of what John's doing. John's saying, the way you test the spirits to see if they are false teachers or false prophets or not is this. Every spirit, every teacher who confesses that Jesus the Messiah has truly become a human being who was always with the Father, that one has the Spirit of God. If they refuse to confess and to hold to this truth, then they are inspired by the Spirit of the Antichrist. So, in verse 2, John says the test is whether people confess or speak the truth of the gospel coming from their hearts. Okay? Then, in verse 6, he's going to go on and say, kind of flip it around. The test is whether a person, when that truth is being spoken, will allow those truthful words to to penetrate, go into, and be received by their heart. Let me read it and see if you can hear it. Verse 6. We, though, believers, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Apostles. In the context of the let me say, that's what he means. That's how he starts off. We were eyewitnesses. We seen, we held, we heard, we touched with our hands. This is what he's referring to. They listen to the apostolic preaching. They listen. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John is saying the test for everyone sitting in this room right now, whether you have the spirit of truth in you, 
is whether you listen. When you, whether you listen when the apostles' teaching is given. See that phrase there? Whoever knows God listens to us. What does that mean? I mean clearly, John doesn't merely mean your eardrums work. And therefore, they are receiving physical sound waves. So you listened. He can't merely mean that, right? But like verse 2, he didn't mean merely confessing, but coming from the heart. As he flips it around, he means like Jesus would constantly say in his ministry. They're all listening to him, and he knows most of them can't hear a word he's really saying. He who has ears to hear, let him, let her, Hear. So clearly he means that receptivity in listening to the truth. It says, I see it. Yes, I embrace the truth of Jesus. That the apostles, the eyewitnesses have proclaimed to us. That's a sign of the spirit of truth at work in the heart. Now just to save time, what I want to do again, I want to paraphrase verses 4 to 6. It just helps bring out, this is how Pastor Joe understands this paragraph and what he's saying. John continues on. Little children, you are born again. Of the Spirit, you are born of God. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And thus, you have overcome the false prophets, the false teachers. Because the Holy Spirit in you is greater than the Spirit of the world. These false teachers are from the world. And therefore, they speak from the Spirit of this world. In the world, those who were not born again, those who are unregenerate, in the world, listens to them. But we Christians are from God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And therefore, whoever knows God truly like that by new birth, listens to the apostles' words. Those who are not born again don't really hear it. This is how you know who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, that is the Spirit of truth, or who is indwelled by the Spirit of error. That's what John's saying. John is clear. He's saying the Holy Spirit assures us that we are saved by causing us to be those persons who attentively listen and receive the gospel with joy and with submission and thus 
Our confession is in line with Peter and Paul and John. It's in line with what the New Testament unfolds. We see it. We love it. And it is our confession. See, if you're hearing that, this is why there is no need for pastors, for teachers, for churches, for any Christian to try to help God out. To tamper with the truth that was once for all given in the New Testament. There's no need to try to say, oh, if I can just make Jesus a little more appetizing than John did, or Paul did, then maybe people will truly become Christians. You don't understand the Gospel. You don't understand God's work in the Gospel. If you think that, that's not what we need. We don't need to tamper with the truth. What we really do desperately and ongoingly need, though, is prayer. Serious, heartfelt prayer that God would overcome our dead, dull hearing and listening. And that God would do this for many people in the South Bay area. And that God would use us here at Sovereign Grace as one of His beacons of light and of truth for the salvation of people. You see, only the Holy Spirit can make sinners really listen. And thus miraculously and really confess the truth of Jesus is their Savior. Unless the, unless the Holy Spirit overcomes people's dead hearing, whether they're churched people or unchurched people, unless the Holy Spirit does this work by giving people ears to hear, then, and I mean exactly every word I'm going to say here, then genuine Christians will not be added to churches. Or specifically, genuine Christians will not be added to Sovereign Grace Fellowship. John clearly assumes that true hearing and true confession of the truth of Jesus are the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's the point in verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. How does a person overcome a lack of hearing, blindness, and get saved by the apostles' teaching, doctrine, the gospel? It is not by some 
inborn natural intelligence that, that the person had. But it's because He who is in you, He who miraculously and mercifully blew like the wind, like Jesus said, and caused you to be born again in the hearing, He who is in you is greater and all the false teachings in the world and in the church. He's given you eyes to see and ears to listen and be saved. That's the only way it happens. And that's why I'm calling us here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship to a period of fasting and prayer once a week for the first quarter of 2015. January, February, and March. To pray on your fasting and prayer day. Father, overcome blindness in our society. Father, reach down and regenerate souls. Father, Cause your church, meaning all these churches in the South Bay, including us, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness and for truth, unadulterated. And more specifically, Father, to grow our numbers here at Sovereign Grace with hungry, listening, Christ-centered persons and families. And so, if you can, unless there's some medical problem about fasting, this is my suggestion. You can fast longer if you want, but it is first this. Choose for the next three months, Monday or Tuesday. If those are impossible for your schedule and there's a better day, choose it. But if you can, Monday or Tuesday. And on that day of fasting and prayer, here's my suggestion. To fast two meals which would go something like this. This is how my fast works. On that day, Serge, don't pass them out right now. On that day, you fast breakfast, you fast lunch, and guess what happens in mid-morning? You're hungry. And that hunger for food reminds you I'm fasting. And it reminds you, I might not hunger for you to answer these prayers, but God, my whole point of fasting is, it reminds me to hunger for you more, to hunger for souls more, to plead with you specifically on this day for these things. And you take another five minutes during your work day. And then you're hungry again. You can pray another two minutes. And by two o'clock, you're dreaming about In-N-Out Burger. And you realize... This is a time to press in and to pray. This is why fasting is such a biblical thing and a helpful thing. To pray on your fasting and prayer day. Most specifically, God, make me more hungry for you. God, add to our numbers here at Sovereign Grace and make us a more hungry people. And so... As we're singing here in a few minutes, Sergio will hand out the rest of those. What he's handing out is a helpful guide 
for your fasting and prayer day. You, you can fold it and keep it in your Bible and you bring it with you, but this basic structure, okay? And this is what, this is what it says. Pray for real revival. Pray for conversions and gospel-centered preaching in the South Bay area. Pray specifically, in other words, ask our Father to add three to seven new family units that would covenant and labor with us in being Christ's body on earth and in spreading the gospel in our area. Pray for our differing means of outreach that they will be effective in causing our church to be a blessing to people in our area. In other words, pray for our evangelism table, our flyer distribution, and for personal evangelism in our lives. Pray for financial increase in our church budget over the coming year. Pray that we, especially as we are in 1 John, pray that we as a body would love one another better, would love one another sincerely from the heart and pursue love in all we do and say. And so he will pass those out and there will, they will remain week after week on the table in the back during this first quarter of 2015. Let's pray. Oh Father, if there are any in here that are stiff-arming keeping away the apostles doctrine word that don't even know they're doing it because they're so dull of hearing I beg of you to open their eyes and open their ears to see and to be saved Father make us a praying people you are the Savior through your Son Jesus Christ by the power and miraculous working of the Holy Spirit through the truth that you have entrusted to your church to your people so Father we rely upon your word written and now we beg of you to work in us to work around us in our area true revival for the glory of Jesus Christ to the eternal happiness and salvation of those you plan to save.